This is Grassroots, where we bring the radical youth to the forefront of political commentary, offering critical discussion about radical ideologies and theories across the political spectrum. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Alani Hodge, and thank you for tuning in to the very first episode of Grassroots. Today, we are going to be discussing socialism, a topic that has proven to be very controversial and radical. Our guest today is the host of Progressive Watch on YouTube and a good friend of mine, Jason Alaru Hagen. First, before we get started, I just want to thank you, Jason, for hopping on this call, especially with COVID and um, everything that's going on in school, because school's been stressful for me, and I'm sure it's been stressful for you. They're not really giving us much slack right now. (laughs) True. Thank you for taking the time to be able to come on here. I know we had some difficulties before, too. No problem. So the first question I want to ask you is one that I kind of want to start as a trend between all of my guests is what started out your passion for politics and what would you say radicalized you? So I first got involved in politics in 2016 uh, during the election and during the primary in between Bernie and Hillary. That was when I first started getting into politics. I already liked history a lot. And I was already kind of into the social sciences. Uh, sorry, that's my dog. That's fine. Around, but basically, uh, I was kind of involved with that kind of stuff. And then the election rolled around and I was watching it on the news. I got pretty interested. Uh, and from then on, I kind of followed what happened in 2016 uh, when Hillary lost and Trump won. You know, that was a pretty big deal. Uh And then, and you know, in the coming years, seeing what was wrong, but also I would say what radicalized me is learning about why Trump won, right? Because like the reason Trump won was because of like systemic, very like ground level issues in this country uh, that are like really deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's why like learning like, oh, how did we get here? That's kind of what radicalized me. And before we go further into that, maybe we should talk about the definition of radical, because I know in the media, it's kind of been tossed around as a kind of a scary term that will Mm -hmm. make people drift away from leftist ideals in general. So um, could you maybe give your definition of what radicalism is? Well, I think radical has been tarred with, you know, this very broad brush as being a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, the thing I like to say is that the if you look at the literal definition of radical, that just means going to the root uh, from the very, like if you take the definitions of the Latin parts of the word, uh, which I think is exactly the point, right? The point is that it's not like you're a moderate or, you know, you're just stuck within the two party system. You're not just applying, uh, you know, surface level uh, solutions. If there even are solutions to existing problems, you are, talking about how do we get to the root of what people are suffering from how do we pull that plan out all the way so that we can make a society where that doesn't have to even be an issue that needs to be addressed so another term i would like you to define which is the one that's kind of like the overarching topic of our conversation today is uh, Mm -hmm. socialism because i know a lot of people have a problem with conceptualizing what it is because mm-hmm. all our life we've just been kind of taught socialism equals communism communism equals dictatorship yep the the i think the fun joke that i see is there's like a leftist professor and he does like a bit where he goes like 
socialism is when the government does stuff and communism is when the government does a lot of stuff. And <laughs> I think that's a, a pretty good way of like describing what the current misconception is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think basically what the definition in my book is, is the collective ownership of the means of production, right? So in the common uh, discourse, socialism is just like when the government, you know, makes a big program or whatever to help poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not like, that's not a definition of socialism. That's kind of what it's taken on recently, but that has nothing to do with socialism in general. You can live under a capitalist economic system uh, where certain programs are run by the government to make sure people have you know, like basic necessities. That's right. still capitalism. That's not socialism. Socialism is when our businesses are not owned by the CEOs, are not owned by one or two people or the stockholders. Right. It's when they're owned by the people who work in those businesses. So interesting that you said that you could live in a, a country where it still has a lot of socialist policies that is capitalist in nature. Right. Um, I've heard there's a lot in the debate of people are saying China is not a communist or socialist country. It's actually capitalist. What is your views on that? Yeah, China is definitely a capitalist country. Uh, It's what I would call state capitalism, what a lot of people call state capitalism, in that the government is like big and the government owns like a fair number of like private industries. No, I mean a fair number of public industries. Uh, but it runs them like directly for profit, right? The 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 workers have very little to no control in mm. the actual government, in that the actual way the factories are run, how things are done, in their wages. You know, the unions, right, are not very acceptable in China, uh, right. and right, I mean that's unions are the bread and butter of socialism. Uh, it's state capitalism because it's all the principles of capitalism, all the supply and demand, all that, all the factories owned by the wealthy. But it's just run by it's just greater state involvement, and even right. that it's not like all the industry is state owned, right? Uh, it's still like fifty percent is private industry, like private private ownership. So it's like it's pretty it's like kind of a weird system, but definitely just like capitalism, but with a really strong state to keep it up. That gets me onto another point. Um, online, I've been seeing a lot of well memes basically where they're like pointing out. <laughs> Uh, a lot of the criticism that socialism receives are actually reflections of capitalism. Yeah, There was someone uh, describing a workplace, describing tyranny where you don't have any choices. You have to work all the time. You get paid, not you get paid what your labor isn't worth and you have mm-hmm. no choices in that matter. And someone was like, doesn't this sound like the American workplace? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible the amount at which capitalism or people who live under capitalism and choose to support it, right? People who say there are capitalists, but you know, they're not like incredibly wealthy. You're not a capitalist. A capitalist <laughs> is somebody who owns some factories, right. right? You're not a capitalist. You're just a supporter of those people. Yeah. Right? Capitalists produce capital. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not an ideology. It's where you are in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it is both, but it's weird for yourself, somebody to call themselves a capitalist. The uh, the way in which capitalism projects itself onto socialism, right? Mm-hmm. You see the memes where it's like uh, like an empty. Like I remember at the beginning of COVID, there were memes about like empty shelves because you know people were buying everything up, right. especially toilet paper. And then you know there were memes that are like, oh well, this is what life is like in like you know the Soviet Union. It's like, dude, you, you are literally talking about a failure under a capitalist system to provide basic necessities to people, and right. you're like, oh yeah, that's communism. It's 
think about it this way, right? And this is something we'll talk about more, I bet. But sure, we have a democratic government, right?、Mm-hmm. But when you go to work, you are under a dictatorship. You have no participation with that within that on, in like a democratic sense. You don't get、mm-hmm. to make decisions if you're an employee on the runnings of the company. When people talk about dictatorship and all those kinds of things, we have to really consider: is capitalism something that's providing freedom or taking away freedom from?、People? Right. And then another thing that I've seen: people say the so-called freedom that capitalism、mm-hmm. provides, which we all know only really you see the fruits of the freedom of capitalism when you earn capital.、Mm-hmm. It has so much freedom that it allows the rich to have an easy access to the government, a way to corrupt the way that things work in our government. What are your、True. thoughts on that? The government is in the pockets of the rich, right? So we would assume that in a democracy, our politicians would be making policy decisions based off public opinion. Right. Studies have shown, political science studies have shown that of the many factors that drive politicians to make decisions on policy issues, actual public opinion on policies is negligible.、Hmm. Has almost no impact on what policies are passed because there's no accountability. Yeah, and because because what matters is what rich people think, because、right. rich people fund the campaigns, because there is no limit on campaign like volunteering for campaign spending because of things like Citizens United,、mm-hmm. because we have all this corruption, that literally the policy agenda, both Democrat and Republican, right? This is the thing that also to talk about the kind of false dichotomy that you know as much as I'd. Prefer Joe Biden to Donald Trump, right? Fundamentally, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are kind of two sides of the same coin,、mm-hmm. which is supporting the capitalist class, right? But with very minor differences in between them. And both of them get money from the rich, and both of them fundamentally support their agenda over that of the American people. I was thinking to myself the other night that the only reason that they have the minor differences is to create political theater. It keeps the、mm-hmm. people engaged. If, if we didn't have the illusion of a two-party system, the American people would obviously know there's a lack of choice. Therefore, there's something wrong. I, I like to think that sometimes the Republican Party is the mouthpiece of what the capitalist class is actually wanting. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat Party is like the backup plan. So what they do is they like、yep. have the Republicans spew what they really want, see if、mm-hmm. public is okay with it. If we've been indoctrinated enough to follow that,、mm-hmm. if、yeah. not, then they'll have the Democrats tweak it a little bit so we can elect them、mm-hmm. instead. But I don't I know. That might be my totally, conspiracy no, theory. I totally, <laughs> I totally think you're on on the ball there, right? Like the Republicans are like really blatant, right?、Mm-hmm. They're really, especially now. Maybe not so much earlier, but they were earlier, you know, with Reagan and stuff like that. Yeah, but. Democrats are like the false opposition, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, the ratchet effect,、uh, and I can kind of describe it. And basically, it's kind of like a gear, and it's that's the Republicans, and the Republicans turn everything to the right.、Mm-hmm. And then, if people want movement back to the left, the Republicans—I mean, the Democrats—are like the stopping block that prevents movement back to the left. Oh, I've heard this theory. Yeah, they just yeah. basically kind of take in all the class resentment. So Republicans can do everything they want.、Uh, they can move like just. And if you really want to like think about the validity of this, let's think about like how much harder moderate Democrats. How much harder have they fought Bernie Sanders than have they fought like moderate Republicans? Yeah. Right. I mean, just、Very、think、true. about that. Right. Like,、um, 
they, they never had much issue. You know, they're cozying up big time with John Kasich and a lot of them now uh, yeah. for Biden 2020. And they just never had a big problem with them. But as soon as Bernie comes in and he it's, has it's, like a policy agenda that threatens their rich, like their rich base for campaigns, mm-hmm. then they go super hostile, crazy nuts it's on it. It's dangerous for them. Yeah. They, remember how they had to, right before Super Tuesday, they basically made a pact like uh, Buttigieg, all these people who are moderates dropped out, endorsed Biden just to make sure that Bernie could not win. Yeah, it was insane. This brings me to, if we think about it, Obama would brag about his friendship with conservatives. But you yeah. also look at these parties are nowhere near friendly to the Green Party nor the Libertarian Party. Oh, yeah. um, you see not. you see that they purposefully go go the long way to make sure that they can't get on the debate stages, they can't oh, get oh, on yeah. the ballot. They don't want anyone to know about these other two choices. And yet they can be friends. They champion bipartisanship between their mm-hmm. so-called enemy but the party that's close to them has to be silenced true close to them yeah it, because fundamentally both of those third parties are more different from the establishment parties yeah. than those two parties because the parties have a lot of similarity right mm-hmm. the, the thing you know we talked about how we're in a very divided society and that's very true but let's be realistic here the democrats and republicans are still united on things such as bailing out wall street keeping the military funding incredibly high, right? Maintaining class, maintaining the dominance of the capitalist class, mm-hmm. maintaining, like, not fundamentally addressing police brutality. Right, or the prison industrial complex. Problems. Exactly, all the prison industrial complex. You can see the Democrats being marginally better on some of these issues. But again, this is the telling thing. They're not, if, if the popular opinion of this country was just to be marginally better, then that might make sense. But the popular opinion of this country is to be much better than the status quo, right? You have 70% popular support among the general American public in polling data for Medicare for all and for legalization of recreational marijuana. Two huge things, right? 70% of the US public is behind it. Nothing has happened, right? Like, and these are things that the left-leaning party supposedly, had to block out, right? So Mm -hmm. these are two issues, 70% support by the public, but they won't be on the agenda of either party. So what does that say about who the politicians within the mainline parties are actually representing? Who do they actually work for? It's a lot like their argument for the police to protect the police is just like the politicians, but they're here to serve us. They're here to protect us. Mm -hmm. That's not the truth. They're here to protect the interests that that have and we're the have-nots. That's why we get treated the mm-hmm. way that we do. It's completely, I mean, I'm reading right now, I don't know if you know, like A People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn, uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, but for a little bit of a segue, like into police, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea of police as a concept is like an origin from capitalism and is like a combination of like, it, it is originating from capitalism and racism inside of the United States of America right yeah first police forces were the slave patrols of the south Mm -hmm. right the the first police forces in the north were in major urban cities where the industrial revolution was starting to take place there was the development of extremely wealthy capitalist classes and there were hundreds of thousands of people living in terrible conditions working in terrible conditions and factories 12 hour 16 hour days and there was starting to be class conflict right? right and they needed police to prevent the poor 
from take from being able to take retribute from being able to take their fair share basically yeah there's all these you know like the big strikes the big labor movements of the 1800s were cracked down violently on by the police the police are not were not instituted to bring law and order in a sense that is good for us in sense of a mutual benefit because the fact is for a long time we had active modern society but we didn't have police because it up until that point, class conflict had not reached a point in which a violent state authority was needed to suppress it. Yeah, you see that in gun laws as well. Um, just like mm-hmm. police, they were completely unheard of. It was not common that the state was trying to take your guns away oh, until yeah. something was bad was brewing, basically. So exactly. when the South, when the South first started getting gun laws, which is surprising to most pe- most people, they were the first ones to implement gun laws in America. Was mm-hmm. the Deep South was to keep them out of the hands of Black people because yep. they knew that because of the way they're treated, it would be dangerous for them to have a way to protect themselves. And it's the same way now. They're trying to keep guns out of the hands of the of people of lower socioeconomic status, whether they're poor or minorities, because they know it's dangerous. Because they will they will be able to protect themselves. One hundred percent. I mean, this is why you know Malcolm X and other major figures talked about the importance of you know, and this is why you know Karl Marx says mm-hmm. any attempt to disarm the workers must be frustrated by force if necessary. Mm-hmm. Because the idea is if we, like, if we live in a society where all the political power within the status quo system, right, is taken by the wealthy and you mm-hmm. drain the people of the ability to radically change the system through peaceful means, and then you take away their means to change the system by violent means by taking away their guns, then that's the perfect recipe for maintaining the status quo. Exactly. But that's why it's so important that force is something that is on the table, right? Yeah. I read a story about uh, black strikers, a uh, black uh, who who worked at like who worked in docks near Charleston, South Carolina, and the head of the union, uh, which you know this is like late eighteen hundreds, which is like incredibly brave because how Jim Crow was extremely times. And they talked to this guy and he was like, how did you manage to make, how, how did you manage to win this labor conflict given the Jim Crow laws and all of this? And he took out a box of shotgun shells and he took out a cap, uh, uh, a copy of uh, State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. And he said, theory and practice. That's mm-hmm. how we did it. And that kind of shows that when the status quo is so cemented, it's sometimes necessary, not even as not even to have a violent insurrection, but if you maintain a well-armed proletariat, then that prevents a lot of the well-like landed uh, powerful classes from implementing laws that like are too awful against people. Yeah, the- even at the height of the protest, right? We had unarmed mm-hmm. protesters, and we had armed protesters, and. Mm-hmm. What we saw were the armed protesters, the Black Guns Matter people that were out there marching for George Floyd. They didn't get gassed. They didn't get mm-hmm. shot at. They, yep. they were safe because they were armed and they were trained. And even though they didn't hold it, they wielded their guns in a protective way, not in a, a, a dangerous way. The police knew not to mess with them. And we see this, we see this cry from neoliberals and people who like, you know, champion the establishment to stray away from violence, stray away from rioting. But Mm -hmm. what we see when we stray away from force or at least having the means to protect ourselves is continued abuse, which is another segueing back into into socialism and uh, the Democratic Party and all of that. It goes to show that they are not truly on our side. 
Yep. And um, I personally have a belief that people who are socialists in the Democratic Party have to separate or else they're going to get drowned out. It continue, like it, to me, it's political suicide to continue to align ourselves. Agreed. I, I, th- I mean, it's, it's such a, I, I'm no like you, it's, it's a really delicate situation mm-hmm. because, you know, people have this idea that you can change the Democratic Party from within. I have no clue if that'll ever be possible. I mean, just right now, you know, with the election and Trump maybe stepping down or not, everything is so, I have no clue where we'll be within five months. You know, it's like, I don't know what the long-term strategy is. There's no foreseeable future right now. Exactly. Because we just don't know exactly what the future is. And that's what's so crazy. There's a lot that hangs in the balance right now Mm because we we have an election season, but we do also have major cities going through insurrections and we still have protests going nationwide. Counting all of that in, I don't see us fixing the Democrat Party from the inside. Because if you think about what we were talking about before... Um, about how the rich is in the pockets of the wealthy. And you also take into account the way that Congress works. There's senior congressmen and there's junior congressmen. Senior congressmen have all the power. They have the better seats. They have all of that. So everyone's like, everyone that I've talked to, they're like, oh, okay, well, we have the team. We have the squad. They're they're socialists. They could push our beliefs forward. There's four of them, maybe five compared to, and they're all junior congressmen compared Mm -hmm. to the numbers of senior congressmen that are establishment and will die as establishment. So I don't see how we can do this with the amount of money that you need to get your bill across and the amount of compromise that you would need to get your bill across. There will always be huge loopholes in whatever we try with the legislative route. Yeah, I agree. And this is the thing that's so interesting uh, and that I've been reading about is that electoralism has so often been used as a way to diffuse big movements to mm-hmm. cause social change, right? Like you had uh, these movements during, you know, uh, the late 1800s that were labor movements and movements for like racial justice and things like that, right? That started from people organizing very grassroots. And then people decided like, even when they tried protesting and striking and doing more radical direct action at first, they then started saying, well, what if we try to do this within the means of the democratic system that has provided? And then when they tried to do that, they saw their policies and their intents and their actions get diluted or disrespected or whatever necessary so that it couldn't work within electoralism. But because everybody was like, okay, well, we're just going to do it this way. They focus all their energy towards that. They ended up losing any of the momentum they could have made for direct radical action right. outside of the democratic system. And and that's what we see with a lot of uh, radical movements is mm-hmm. they gain tons of traction, they're at the height, and then they yeah. go for office and they yeah. die. Exactly. Because either they get into office, like either they don't get into office or they only get into office because they try to, you know, make themselves more palatable to mm-hmm. what they think the general public wants. And then, you know, it, it always starts with that. And then it just gets more and, and more. And they get more and more watered down. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that's, just, that's just a scary thing. And I think that's why American, like the American dictatorship, which is to say this dictatorship of like the centrist ideal, Mm-hmm. Right. Because, yes, we have a democracy in function, but we have strict control by the wealthy and the people who control our politics, who keep the range of accepted debate very, very narrow. 
Right. Even though we have elections and people can get replaced, this is the most consistent thing. We never go outside this kind of framework. And even if you look at like other European countries, which fundamentally are capitalist and Mm -hmm. also have some of the problems that we have, even they can have things like nationalized healthcare, free healthcare, right? Uh, Better drug, not the prison industrial complex, better drug laws, things like that. That's why this is, it's it's such a it's such a strong system that's been designed to last because it's able to be flexible. And I know, like the listeners will probably be thinking, like, oh, how does this all tie into socialism? But um, mm-hmm. what it comes down to is, without socialism, there's no real way to get rid of things like the prison com- complex or big pharma because of right. the way that they have their hands in the pockets of government. Mm-hmm. Those two systems, big pharma and the prison industrial complex in my opinion, are two of the biggest um, and most harmful lobbies that we have right now. And mm-hmm. I think the tech company is starting to become a, a really big one as well yep. um, that we need to keep our eye on. Uh, but do you have any opinions on that? Well, here's the thing. This is why anti-capitalism is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we look at our societal ills, and this is the element of radicalism, this is the element of addressing root issues, right? Why is it that these things in our society are so wrong, right? Like we can look at healthcare, right? Why don't people have access to healthcare? We can look at the prison industrial complex. Why do we keep throwing people in for crimes that, you know, shouldn't be crimes, right? Prison industrial complex, right? Surface level solution, which is something that we should do is legalizing marijuana, right? Right. Everybody can recognize, right? That's racist, that's terrible, and there's no need to do that. But then you have to ask yourself, why is it that even in the first place, this is something that happened? Mm-hmm. And the reason that happened is because people wanted an act, able to access cheap or free labor through the prison system. They wanted to continue slavery, basically, through an inadvertent way. They wanted to gain that because they had that greed. Greed under the capitalist system is how you succeed right? We have this infinite growth mentality. You cannot stop. You always have to be growing the most you can. You need to get money or else you're going to get outcompeted because some person who has less morals than you is going to beat you. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, all right, well, the easiest way to do it is to criminalize black people, to make them look bad to the white American public, and then throw them in prisons and use them for cheap labor, Mm -hmm. right? Healthcare. Yes. Okay. Well, we can uh, subsidize healthcare for people like, okay, cheaper. But why is it that we approach giving people light, like surviving treatment as an issue of, I need to profit off of this. How do you make money off of that? Yeah, exactly. It's, and a lot of the stuff we notice the American perspective is really, well, money, how that's the first thought everybody goes to when you bring up, um, well, we need to address homelessness. Who's going to pay for that. We need to address big pharma. Who's going to pay for that. Maybe I'm paying for it. We already pay money in taxes. Maybe I want my taxes to go towards helping the homeless, which is a detrimental social issue in our country right now. Mm -hmm. That's a growing issue in our country right now, rather than blowing up hospitals in the Middle East. But that, like, when you start bringing out that side of the conversation, it completely starts to shut down. Oh, I 100% agree. The how do you pay for it argument is always, like, it's... No, it's simple. I just, instead of my money going to fund weapons, which kill Palestinian children, I want right. it to go to like give people healthcare. It's like not that difficult. We pay nearly a trillion dollars a year on the military. That's like as much money as we would pay for like the Green New Deal. Like the supposedly like crazy thing you could never pay for. 
yeah like, that republicans always talk about that and that's the thing the green new deal would have like a deadline after you do it for like 10 20 something years you're done the military exactly. funding it continues on to perpetuity nobody's planning to lower it at any point it just goes up every single year it's not about paying money it's not about being responsible it's, ne- it's never been about responsible spending the republican party was never about responsible spending no, reagan came into office he said fiscal responsibility, that's what he was going to do. He increased the military budget. He increased the deficit. He increased the debt, which Space he promised force. to do the exact opposite of. Exactly. Right? It's not about, it all, this is all moral posturing. It's I'm the responsible one. I'm going to look after. It's trying to look strong, but it's all BS because yeah. you're just getting money from rich people. And this is something that's actually really nefarious, right? So, you know, when we spend, when we do deficit spending, when we go into debt, that money doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from people who borrow through government bonds. Right. And the people who borrow from government bonds are wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And each year we pay back interest on those bonds. So rich government debt is literally just a scheme to get rich people more money because they buy government bonds and then reap the interest off those bonds. And wow. then the people who end up paying are the taxpayers. And so think about it this way. All the profits from the debt go to the rich and all the people who pay the interest on that debt is all of the American people, including the poor. So it's yeah. literally regressive wealth redistribution. That's yeah. what's happening. It's money being taken from the general populace, from the poor classes and sent to the rich. And it's interesting that you brought that up because I was looking at arguments of, cause you know, Republicans to just, they were on Trump's day, excuse my language, but they were about him not paying taxes, like they were championing him for it. And the same thing with Bezos and Amazon not paying tax taxes. Same thing with Elon Musk getting payouts. They're all like, well, they need it, blah, blah, blah. But my whole thing is, you say that taxes are theft, right? You say, and I personally, I do think that the state taking money from us is the same way that surplus value is labor wage theft. But you say that it's theft. So shouldn't you be upset that the money that they're stealing from you isn't even going anywhere near you, but it's going to someone who's way more well-off than you? Yeah. Yet they still champion these people. These are the same people that are stealing your money. You complain that taxes are stealing, that people are stealing your taxes, but you're championing them for giving all the money to Bezos and for Trump using socialized health care socialized healthcare uh in the american mm-hmm. po- uh, politics um and you're championing him for that even though he didn't pay any of those taxes so he's directly taking money out of your pockets i don't understand it well this is what i think is going on i think the american dream is dying but it hasn't died yet mm-hmm. it's still with too many people people still have this myth right that we have this great economic mobility that sure you can be poor or start off middle class but you can get to be wealth, you can get to be that millionaire. Here's the thing, if you wanna live the American dream, go live in France, go live in Germany, go live in Sweden, right? All of these countries have much higher economic mobility than the United States of America. We're, we're pretty terrible on that. Chances are, if you're born rich, you're gonna stay rich. If you're born poor, you're going to stay poor. But because we propagated this myth that America is a meritocracy, that you can start from the bottom. And you know, that was more true in, the, in earlier decades. Uh, especially for white people, most of all. Oh, yeah. But overall, that has just become less of the case for everybody as their economy becomes more stratified and more unequal. But because this myth has been perpetuated, people are willing to believe it. They don't want to raise taxes on the rich 
because they think one day they could be rich. They want to be there and they see themselves in people who are at the top. And that's just because we haven't, because this very like effective advertising, you know, we have like a very glitzy culture, a very materialist culture, you know, that prides, like that glorifies wealth and things like that, Uh, that these people, like, it just doesn't come to them that that's not how the system is designed. The system isn't designed for you to make it up the ladder. And even if you were to make it up the ladder, what did you have to do to make it up the ladder? Right. What people did you have to step on? And that's kind of the issue. Why is it that we have to live in like a country where to succeed, you have to step on people? Exactly true. And now that I think about it, because you know that I used to be anarcho-capitalist when Mm -hmm. I was going through my, um, when I was first going through my radicalization, because I knew that there was an issue with the state, but I still wasn't quite sure about the economic side of things. Um, what really brought me over more left was when I realized how much a billion dollars is. Mm-hmm. When I realized if you do the math, if you were making $1,000 from the day that Christopher Columbus set foot on American soil mm-hmm. to today, you would still not be a billionaire. That's mm-hmm. when I realized these people are threatening the freedom of Americans and mm-hmm. they're stealing from Americans. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't build that up from $1,000 every day, from the mm-hmm. day that Christopher Columbus set foot on American mm-hmm. soil, it's there's no way that you can make that without stepping on people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this is the thing that I think is quite, I think this is an interesting way to think about it. Uh, and that's the historical perspective, which is what, you know, Marx talks about with historical materialism and things like that, mm-hmm. that in this, or like the 1700s or like early 1800s, uh, capitalism was like new hip thing. That was kind of like, better than what was going on then right which is early you had the aristocracy right. where there was zero zero social mobility you were born into what you did and then you stayed completely with that yeah there was no freedom there was no freedom of like any kind no freedom of labor or anything like that capitalism was part of the enlightenment it was part of the ideas of science and reasoning and uh like more freedom and things like that it was part of that improvement on society but here's the thing it was better but it didn't fulfill that promise because it kept those inequities right it fundamentally keeps the things that prevent us from reaching like equality and true social mobility and like kind of a utopian vision of humanity right the problem is still that capitalism creates authoritarianism capitalism involves the the thievery of surplus value from laborers right the end goal of society should be greater equality and just better lives for everyone. And that's what socialism is trying to achieve. It's trying to achieve what historically has been kind of a constant improvement. And you know what um, a lot of people will say is they use utopian in a negative way, like an insult towards socialists. They're like, well, socialists are just utopians. Like, like they want a utopia. It's not possible. Um, And I noticed like with people that have that kind of mindset, they also see the economy as like a all-knowing natural thing and not a human-made service like it's something that we have to abide by and um as much as i hate capitalism they've done such a good job to make sure that the things that they have created were seen as norms and not something that was can easily be replaced by something else that was made by a person What's your view on that? Like how people see the economy as like this invisible force that we have to live by. 
So there's an interesting book, which I haven't read, but I've gotten the gist of called Capitalist Realism, which Mm -hmm. talks about how in today's day and age, according to the public conscience, capitalism is the only option. There is no like, like, for example, during like the 1800s, especially in Europe and the United States, uh, and a little bit later in much of Asia, there was a common, like there was, it was very common for people to be like full on actual socialists and be like, this is something that we can achieve. And it's the thing that some people would do, right? Mm. But, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, which, you know, was definitely not, uh, as, a, as a leftist, I will say, they had some good things, but a lot of bad things. Uh, but basically, people can't think outside of, like, the current economic framework. Like, it's impossible. Like, and that's why, like, one of the best examples is is when capitalists try to use the human nature point, right? Greed and all of these things are unfortunate, but they make sense because that's how humans are. They are greedy. They want to enrich themselves, which is capitalist realism at its finest. We have lived under capitalism for a few hundred years. Humans have existed for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. And for 99%, of our existence as a species we have lived in small anarchist communes yeah basically vibing on the planet that's literally what that is the natural state of humanity if we want to go off what has been what we've evolved as our behavior because human human behavior fundamentally can't evolve over like 800 right right like that is what fundamentally is what we are. And that is why the world seems so messed up now. It's not in line with what is more human nature with us. I mean, I think right. personally that human nature, there isn't much that is inherently human nature. I think human nature is inherently adaptable and it kind of fits itself to whatever circumstances. Mm-hmm. So if people create circumstances, like adapt to them. But if you think about it, like, why is it that, you know, the whole idea of capitalism, like the whole, whenever we tell kids about when they get a job, it's like, you have to balance what you want to do, what you morally think is right with getting money. Like our collective morality, like the way- Is it compromised. You know, and that's the craziest thing, our morality, our decisions on what are right and wrong, that's a result in part of evolution, of us saying what is good, like what is objectively good. And mm-hmm. the fact that we have a system that inherently forces us to compromise with what we feel is objectively good proves that the existing system isn't a manifestation of our natural state. And our, it is completely against it. It is contradictory to that. If you look at psychology, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't hold up. The nature of a greedy human doesn't hold up. The only time that humans get substantially greedy in any way is when their family or their community is in danger. That's when humans get selfish. And even mm-hmm. then, can you really call that selfish? If you look at psychology and many studies of nurture versus nature, what we learned is that um, nature and nurture actually work together. And mm-hmm. what people are seeing as a natural a natural response of greed is actually a human's natural response to their environment. It what you basically what the study of epigenetics has found is that. Uh, your environment can change the way your, your genetic makeup expresses itself. So it doesn't exactly change your actual genetic makeup or your actual genetic writing, but it does change the way it's expressed. So it can stunt the way, your potential or make it even better because you're in a good environment. This shows that if you live in a society that values and champions selfishness, which it does, because that's the only way you can make it on top, 
is to be selfish. You cannot be cooperative. Um, You will see a trend of greedy people because Mm -hmm. it is about survival. But if you look at what people do in psychology when they're looking up for a nature argument is they for to toddlers before they can be really touched by society okay and you put toddlers in a room basically and to get out of the room they have to like build a certain mechanism i don't remember the study exactly i remember my teacher was talking about it and what happened was in any situation the kids will eventually work together the notion of humans are individualistic in nature it completely doesn't hold up when you actually look at the science related to our behavior of sociology and psychology which conservatives like to call not real science because it it debunks everything they believe exactly (laughs) but it doesn't hold up individuality doesn't hold up yep uh and i mean it's literally deadly right i mean this is a small example but uh the best thing I like to cite is how the United States de- dealt with COVID versus Vietnam. Now, Vietnam actually borders China, right? Vietnam does not have the wealth that we have, partly because we submitted it to 20 years of literally destroying it with napalm right. and killing its people and genociding its people. But despite all that, despite all the handicaps that Vietnam has faced, right? Right. Uh, You know, it's what it would call itself a socialist state that has a lot of socialist principles, right? Uh, But it is still like trying to kind of in a way state capitalist, but they still, Mm -hmm. like they replaced the individual's mindset with a much more communitarian one. When COVID was starting, and also because they have the more communitarian approach, they don't put the economy over people's lives, right? right? So take that into account as well. When COVID started, shut down immediately. They put out mass campaigns, reminding people, you know, to wash their hands. But everybody also, because they had a communitarian mindset, was much more careful. Everybody was always wearing masks. Everybody just instantly mobilized. No debate, just totally got right down to it. And when it got to the end of it, Vietnam only had like a thousand something cases and like a couple deaths. The United States White House has more cases than like Vietnam in like the past couple of weeks. Wow. Like, it did really, really well, despite the fact that they're nowhere near as wealthy as us. They are so much closer in geographical proximity to China. Everything should have gone, and they're pretty densely populated populace too. Uh, everything should have gone poorly for them. Things should have gone well for us, and it didn't. You know, this is actually a good segue into my next topic and getting us back onto um, socialism. Because now that we've kind of broken down, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, the ills of capitalism, a lot of people will say, well, socialism keeps getting tried and it continues to fail. And they can keep saying that it's like, it's genocidal, it kills people. Mm-hmm. What are your views on that? And are there any socialist countries we could look to today that actually can be seen as having a lot of promise? So one of the things that is the most interesting is that, so, so like socialism, whenever it happens is like, it was within individual countries. The idea that basically all socialists and communists have is that eventually it needs to be a worldwide thing, right? Because fundamentally the world is the best. We can provide the best quality of life for people if you, if like the world is unified, right? Like global trade is a good thing. Like it doesn't matter whether you're a capitalist or like you're a communist, you recognize that like some countries have like advantages in the production of some things more than others. And that, you know, if there was greater cooperation, you can obviously provide more to more people. Right. And global trade is good. Like as a thing, I don't like the way it's happened, the way globalization has happened because it's been dominated by capitalism. So it's caused a lot of exploitation. Right. If we had globalization under socialism, I think it'd be a much bigger thing. But the point is one of the most important things to having a successful economic system that provides for people is 
global integration. And then this is the problem, right? Most socialist states that come around are immediately ostracized by the rest of the world because the rest of the world is capitalist. Uh, they're often embargoed. Cuba is the best example. Uh, and worst case scenario, they're violently attempt, they, the, the capitalist states try to violently overthrow the government or invade them in order to reinstate capitalism, right? That is what happened to the Soviet Union during their revolution where the United States, the French, the Germans, like literally people who were just enemies uh, like five minutes ago, all sent troops together to fight the Soviets, which I think is kind of like, like this is kind of also Democrats and Republicans. The idea is like, just like in World War One, how these people were like fake enemies of each other. Yeah. We have all these conceptions of fake enemies to play people against each other, to get people angry against somebody else that they shouldn't be angry at. And then when the real threat pops up, which is to the capitalist classes, everybody gets together to try to. But basically back until my main point, the reason why socialist states have such a hard time is because taken away from the rest of the world, they're closed off. Uh, they don't get the benefits of globalism, uh, more cultures and more trade. And often they're violent, like, you know, Latin American dictators were violently overthrown. They tried to assassinate Castro so many times, which actually takes me to Cuba, because I think Cuba is one of the most interesting countries that, uh, you know, is because of a lot of pressure, I think is becoming more capitalist now. Uh, but basically for has has for a long time had a very, very functional system in a lot of ways, despite all of the problems that it's had to face, right? Mm -hmm. Where it was embargoed by like the entire world for decades upon decades. And, you know, the United States would not trade with it. It traded with the Soviet Union for a while, but then it collapsed. But think about all this stuff. It has lower infant mortality than us. It has higher life expectancy. It has higher quality of life stats on almost, on so many verifiable metrics, right? And how is it that Cuba, a country that was colonized for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. That had to have a, that had violent revolutions right. that was that was exploited by the American business classes in the 1900s, right? And that only had its government since like the 1950s. How was it done so much better than us already? Right. And it's because it's a mindset thing. They ins they have the communitarian mindset more so in Cuba. They have greater they have guarantees by the government. They make sure that people can meet their basic necessities. Right. Like logically. What mm -hmm. should have happened was Cuba should have ended up something like Haiti, where, yeah. well, I know that's what the capitalist goal was, because what they did to Haiti is what they were, I feel they were trying to do to um, Cuba, where Haiti was, had a lot of potential to become, a, like a lot of the background to become a socialist country. And the U.S. and France, and I believe Britain as well, um, started to kind of gang up on Haiti, block their trade occupy the land i know u.s the u.s occupied the land and was um causing political conflict and all of this basically they were just making sure socialism never arrived anytime that a socialist leader was uh starting to up and come and getting the attention of the people they were stifled either assassinated removed from power you know and it makes so much sense because they threatened the amount of money that rich people in the united states could make right mm -hmm. let's think about guatemala guatemala was a country or not a, it was a corporation with a country attached to it. Guatemala's entire political scene, almost everything in the country, was controlled by the United States, the United Fruit Company from the wow. United States, a massive corporation, right? But through a mag, like through a big electoral event, they managed to elect a leftist figure 
as the president of Guatemala. And it immediately, he started putting in state programs to ensure people would have basic necessities. Uh, he started taking away a lot of the land from the United Fruit Company uh, to start giving it back to the people so that they could farm it communally. Mm-hmm. And that was really working. Like it was really, really working. Like quality of life increased dramatically over a short period of time. But then United Fruit Company went to Dwight Eisenhower and said, it's, it, well, they didn't say this. What, what they really wanted to say was, we're not making any money because this government is now putting restrictions from us being able to exploit the people who live there with, mm-hmm. inhuman, with inhumane working conditions and working hours and like t- very high rents and things like that because they also own the houses where people would live. They would right. make so much money off this. And they t- but they went up to White Eisenhower and they said, oh, this dude in Guatemala, he's a commie. He's probably backed by the Soviets. Just kill him and replace him with somebody that we like. And he was like, okay. And that's what they did. Because- didn't Elon Musk uh, stage a coup like that? Where oh yeah, and like he joked about it, like I'll coup whoever I want. Issue that happened in Bolivia. This I feel like this is one of those things that thirty years from now the CIA will like release the files. Yeah, and, and like, we'll know. Oh, yeah. That's the thing that's so weird about the mainstream media. Like, I just want to add that in that the mainstream media's opinion on like the CIA is always like, oh yeah, they did fucked up shit like thirty years ago, but like. If you say they did anything now, you must be. How dare you? Yeah. yeah. And then like, 10 years later, it's like, oh, yeah, they did do that stuff. But like the stuff you're talking about now, no way. No, it's like, okay, when they admitted or when it was proven that they had flooded black communities with crack. Oh, and, yeah. and then everybody was like, oh, well, there's no repercussions of that. We're not going to address that. You got an entire community crack addicted and it was never addressed. <laughs> Like they, they literally will point out the wrongs of the CIA and leave it and just leave it. They're like, yeah, it happened. I mean, that is a whole segment on its own. Yeah, but, it, is. it definitely is. But I mean, socialist countries are that, you know, there've been so many examples of small ones ha- like popping up around the world, uh, but they just get kind of crushed by the United States before they can really have potential. Uh, and you had China. China was an interesting case. Uh, in that, you know, like Mao had a lot of power and things like that. And Mao did go crazy uh, on some things and a lot of things didn't work well. But I think this is also a thing that needs to be discussed in terms of like socialism and communism and capitalism. And that's that like it's ideologies need to be tested and practiced and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Capitalism, as we know it today, is not how it existed for a long time. Right. Yeah. There have been many examples of capitalism that were, you know, starting up in the 1800s and they need to be tried and fit to like see what was the best. And like in that process, a lot of people died. Like capitalism is a ruthless ideology. Like, yeah, the, when pe- that's why when people talk about like, oh, all the deaths caused by communism and capitalist socialism. Like, are we not going to talk about the fact that when capitalism started up in like the late, like in like the early 1500s, like the very beginnings of capitalism, that is what, that is what inspired like the, uh, and when that happened with the discovery of the Americas, that's what motivated people to go to these places, make these colonies, uh, you know, basically exploit the land, genocide people who live there in Africa and Asia and North America, you know, the massive amount of poverty that like, occurs across the globe like think about the fact that like the united states wastes like a third of the food that we have like a third of the food people buy is wasted but people are still starving like across the world 
um, there was something where a farmer was forced to dump a truckload, I think, of potatoes. (laughs) And someone like, I was reading the comments and someone was like, there's people, there's homeless people that could have ate that food. There's people in our country who could have benefited from that. And someone's response was, yeah, well, how are they going to pay the driver to deliver those potatoes? Exactly. What? So instead, just throw the potatoes out. Thousands of potatoes. That doesn't make sense. But but, that, but 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 that's the thing. It actually makes a ton of sense because if you live in capitalism, the economic system is organized like this. Mm-hmm. The unit, the building block of society is individuals. And every individual will act as a rational actor to enrich themselves. That is the basic of capitalism and the capitalist economics. We're all individuals seeking rationally to enrich ourselves above all which then makes that situation makes total sense because if the farmer can't afford to store it and thus to have it would be a waste of money uh and he knows he can't sell it because of the crisis then the rational decision is to dump a bunch of food and that makes total sense but that's the problem. The fact that something that makes total sense under our economic system is repulsive to us, fundamentally, morally, to see food thrown away while people are starving, that's the problem. Yeah. That is the issue, fundamentally. Why do we not have a system where people are like, oh, we got food? All right, here, eat it. That's not, that doesn't work with the conception of private property. Another thing, any any attempt to make it so that you want to help people selflessly, they stop you from doing that, it seems. You cannot plant a public garden in a bad neighborhood. That's It'll immediately be destroyed. They'll, um, I heard in one case in like Compton or something, the state poured bleach on the land because they kept trying to plant a community garden so that they would have fresh food to eat. Because as we all know, in bad areas like that, they are food deserts with nothing but McDonald's and liquor stores. And they wanted to be able to have fresh food to eat. It's absolutely insane the lengths that they will go to make sure that things remain profitable. Yeah, I mean, that's not a surprise at all. McDonald's doesn't want to compromise its profits by people. Mm -hmm. So I I could see 100% McDonald's having funded local politicians to Mm -hmm. implement laws saying no public gardens to make sure people would just eat their crap 24-7. Right. It's so clear. And, And this is also another thing, which is why capitalism is so hard to dismantle, I feel, which is that traditional systems of oppression, whether we're talking like top-down fascism or like monarchies and stuff like that, they were very centralized. They were very focused on one thing. It was like one tall Jenga tower Mm -hmm. that if you pulled a single block out or if you pulled enough blocks out, it could fall down. That is not the system we live in. The system we live in is a system in which everybody just functions as a rational actor seeking to enrich themselves. And as a result, things occur. It's not like, you know, although there are people in our society that have more power and they pay off politicians, it's not like there's 300 lizard people like in the, in the Illuminati room, like yeah. controlling like everybody else like a puppet. Right? Yeah. Because if it was that, then people would just get mad at them and kill them, mm-hmm. right? But it's not, there isn't a massive conspiracy. There's just a fundamentally broken system that benefits people who are rich. And because they think, because they've been trained to see that greed and getting money is the way society is supposed to run, and because everybody else has been conditioned to believe that, things by just running end up with the outcomes we have today. So like the 
statement that I hear a lot is this isn't a system that's broken. It's running exactly the way it was meant to. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. People say you can't fix a system that's not broken. Um, and that's kind of the comeback that a lot of people have for um, liberals when leftists and people who believe in socialism say this isn't, we cannot continue to abide by the bipartisan system. And they're like, well, we want to fix the system, but you can't fix it. I think that's what a lot of people fail to understand is that these aren't mistakes that are happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have the highest incarceration rate in the world by mistake. We don't have a booming homeless population by mistake. Mm-hmm. The, they didn't get half of America, almost most of America addicted on opioids by mistake. None of this was, like when you really look into it, the people who lead these organizations um, had a plan to, to make it a cycle that could be inescapable. It, um, mm-hmm. When you look into Big Pharma, I was watching this, um, documentary on netflix called the business of drugs i really recommend it and on the opioid episode she actually went back into the very beginning of when these opioids were even addressed before doctors weren't prescribing opiates at all for mild pain it was it was unheard of it was only for severe pain and even then the ones that they had were severely weaker than the ones that they prescribe now for mild pain but what happened was there was this um pharmaceutical company who produce these stronger um, opioid drugs, basically like the oxys and stuff. They started to kind of hold seminars with doctors and try to get them on board. At first, organically, they tried it organically, just trying to convince the doctors it wasn't working because they have actual medical training. And they were like, this is crazy addictive. I'm not applying this for a moderate pain. And what they did was they went to hospital administration instead. And they started talking money. And it started a trickle down where the hospital administration would give it to the doctors who would be willing to test it out. The doctors who tested it out would get their patients addicted. What was funny was that when the doctors noticed that their patients were developing addiction and they went back to the pharmaceutical company, the company scientists told them it's not addiction. It's just they need a higher dose because it's wearing off that that's what they told them and that's what basically started the opioid epidemic what i still can't wrap my head around is how people who went to school for 12 years didn't see what they were doing i mean the thing is i 100 percent like see that's the problem and then let's think about how people would like respond to that problem with leftist or liberal comparison right Mm mm-hmm the liberal, the liberal response would be make that illegal, right? Yeah. Make whatever that action is illegal, right? Which is something that should happen 100% within the status quo. But let's think about it this way. We have this, let's, let's imagine we have this monster. This monster is capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And no matter what it will do, it will always seek to cause destruction, right? Almost everybody can acknowledge like the destructive elements of capitalism, right? Liberals can acknowledge it, right? Mm-hmm. That there's all these terrible things that happen because of greed, right? But their response is to just put a chain on to try to limit it, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. Capitalism is a monster that has infinite arms, right? There will always be another loophole. There will always be another way to try to figure something out, right? Put on one regulation, they'll always figure out another way to try to figure it out it's just a game of like you know hit the whack-a-mole right it's just an endless game of whack-a-mole and at what point does it come to the realization 
that we can't just play whack-a-mole. Instead of putting these Band-Aid solutions to every problem that comes up, why don't we address radical root issue of why all these problems come up? Right. Which is greed. Um, and I mean, sorry, the United States is such an interesting case because much of our problems are from greed and racism. And racism to racism within itself is independent from greed, but it is to such a large extent augmented by capitalism. The thing that I know is conservatives cannot wrap their head around is when you start to bring up systemic racism and you start to point out all the lines and it starts to make sense, what they always do is, well, I just don't see everyone being this concerned about black people. But my my thing is, <laughs> a lot of it, especially in modern day, I don't think it's necessarily about us being black anymore. I think it's just that historically it's easier. Like in modern day, it's just easier now. Because a lot of what Republicans say is that, well, I understand racism in the past, but now you you cannot say that corporations are targeting you guys because people don't care about race anymore. I personally think that, yeah, sure, they don't care about race. They might not care that I'm black. I think of, what I think of is Jeffrey Dahmer. He killed my, pri- primarily minorities, right? And when asked, the reporter specifically asked him, are you a racist? He said, no, I'm not a racist, but I knew I would get away with it because minorities are not cared about. That's, and I think that's the mindset that corporations have. It's not that they care that we're, that these are minorities. It's not that they actually care about like, um, oh, we are superior because we're white. It's because it's just easier. That's what they're going to get away with. Um, as you can see, like as soon as the opioid epidemic started, pandemic really started to hit the white community, the brakes were put on it really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think that's a lot of thing that people look over is that capitalism and like you said, and racism go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Cause it gives them someone to um, exploit, gives them someone easily to um, attack. Uh, before 2008, Wells Fargo basically had a camp, had a marketing strat where they would advertise in low income black communities for their subprime mortgages. So the kinds that were really likely to fail in the, uh, you know, end up going bad in the great recession and throwing these people into a lot of debt and throwing them out of their homes. They targeted these communities because they knew people wouldn't care as much about what happened to them. And they were like, these are communities that are impoverished and really want to succeed. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll use that enthusiasm against them. That was basically the idea. I mean, that's why that that's partly why I mean, that's like why the system is so problematic. A thing that uh, the way I like to think about it is the United States is a country where all of us could wake up tomorrow and be individually not racist, as in, like, we do not have a problem with people who are minorities or anything like mm-hmm. that, right? But the country would continue being systemically racist, even yeah. if everybody individually, like, stopped, like, saying the N-word if you were white and, like, hating Black people, right? Like, the basics. Uh, just because it's been institutionally set up because racism has been parroted to take over as kind of an arm of capitalism to sort of expand profits. And it's been dug really deeply into the law to kind of try to make sure that they can get bigger profits by exploiting people who are less likely to be able to, you know, call, uh, protect themselves or get other people to protect them. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't understand is, and what I did understand at first is that capitalism needs a permanent lower class. And because they promote themselves as a system with social mobility, 
they have to have a way to get rid of that social mobility for some people. And that way is through the prison industrial complex is mm-hmm. through addiction and it's through targeting certain demographics because that's the easiest way to do it. Dr. Claude Anderson, he's a, he was someone during the civil rights movement. Um, and he didn't get much recognition because he wasn't, he was one of those that wasn't concerned with social change. He was more concerned with economic change. He kind of was like against Martin Luther King's movement of integration and was like, no, 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 we need to have them trying to get more money into the community and stuff like that. So he kind of was like pushed aside. He basically was like, capitalism is a game and the table isn't a table. It's the backs of black and brown people. And all we need to need to do is just stand up and flip the table over. I think that is very important because what we noticed with the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and riots, right? You quickly saw that people tried to turn Black people against Black Lives Matter in itself. I don't know what it is exactly about it. It's very targeted of trying to get Black people away from radical ideology. As you noticed, they started with oh, well, look at the, look at Antifa. They're mostly white. Not true. But uh, they're like, they're mostly white. And this is, and this and that. Look at the Black Bloc protesters. They're mostly white, purposely like trying to take over your movement and stuff like this. Now they use fear tactics. Like, okay, well, if you buy guns and you do try to stand up for yourself, well, they're just going to shoot you. They're just going to kill you, you know? And um, it's like a targeted attempt to keep Black people out of radical movement. That's why that kind of quote stuck together with me where he was like the capitalism is built on the backs of black and brown people and all they need to do is stand up agreed and i think the reason that it's there is so much available efficacy at keeping black people away from radical movements is that the black community has been so terribly treated by this country that at this point people are willing for any possible like light at the end of the tunnel yeah right and that they're and, and that they really want that they they you know they don't want to necessarily put their hopes in some far off dream when you know there's somebody like Barack Obama who they you know see themselves in and is somebody who promises like you know a hopeful message mm-hmm. right and promises change but you know comes into office and really doesn't change anything you know yeah it's just it it makes so much sense that it works out because it's 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 for the black community who that has been so incredibly exploited they're more likely to really just be desperate for any sort of positive change that can be provided, even if it's not, you know, full systematic revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of, that kind of like middle path that seems more realistic is kind of like the way to do that kind of exploitation you were talking about. I get a lot of backlash when I try to get kind of people in my community to move more left. When I point out, look, you guys are being, it's psychological warfare. You guys are being targeted, basically brainwashed by the Democratic Party to veer away from this movement when it is for you, critical part of this movement. And a lot of the backlash I get is, well, are you saying that Black people aren't smart enough to to get um, think for themselves? I think what a lot of people fail to realize is it's not just us that are brainwashed. They've been doing it to the American people for years. And it's just... It's not bad, it's human nature to be able to get brainwashed. Um, And I think that's another thing, is people get defensive when we start to point out the government's been lying to us. And like, I'm not stupid. I think that's another thing that we get with um, trying to get people to leftist perspectives. Yeah, everybody is indoctrinated and everybody is educated so that they should not arrive at these kinds of conclusions. Mm -hmm. 
which is which is exactly the problem right we learn we all get like the same basic history textbook which offers you know the same view of the american government and american society you know some are even worse than others obviously and it's just you know you you read the pledge of allegiance every morning in school all of these things you know you grow up uh and you get like i mean just living under capitalism and how you're conditioned to live and just consider like for example just the way capitalism you know always keeps people working right like the eight hour workday, for example like yeah that's a thing but a lot of people have to work like multiple jobs and things like that and people are right. always so so busy that they can't necessarily like keep up with everything right which is probably why you know this is more like a youth movement right because youth don't necessarily like they're lives aren't as occupied like time wise and they can okay. more in like that exactly i mean i just think it's so unfortunate that the literal mechanisms of, of capitalism are at this are, are mechanisms that help ensure its dominance by keeping people away from really like looking into how they're getting screwed you know what's interesting to me when you brought up like work is another thing that pushed me left because i was still on the fence but what really pushed me was working in the fast food industry. What I noticed is that jobs are dictatorial, right? Mm-hmm. And you know me, I'm very anti-authority. Yep. And when I got into this work environment and I saw that I had little to no freedom, they did not care about me going to school. They did not care about my personal goals in life. They wanted my life to be jack in the box. I had to go, <laughs> I had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed that that's not, that's not an option for everybody. Yeah, exactly. and, and the way that they were working me because they could, because I was young, they would have me working um, insane hours. I gave them my school schedule and they said, screw your school schedule. And like would have me working all throughout school days and stuff like oh. that. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that everybody there was working um, longer than eight hours. And most of us were just barely turning 18. It was just so that the managers wouldn't have to work their their normal hours so that they had more time off. But um, that baffled me. And when I started talking to other people, that was how the workplace is. It's like legitimately what the workplace is. You're, you're not listened to. You're belittled. You get yelled at. Like you just go through mental exhaustion every day of being belittled and yelled at by customers and your boss. You request time off. You don't get it. You go home. You wish you had the energy to do something you enjoy, and then you don't, and you just go to sleep and do it again. I don't know how people live like that. I don't know if it's because I already kind of had a perspective before I went into the workplace about how people should be treated, and that's why I very much like couldn't. But when I noticed that like I would come home, and I would have to do my schoolwork, and then I would go to sleep, and then wake up and go back to work and do it all again with not even being able to talk to my family or anything, um that's what I was kind of like this I this isn't right and this isn't how people should live because I didn't even feel mentally okay in the few weeks that I was working you know I mean it's just it's not affording people basic dignity right Mm -hmm. that's the problem and that's the thing that's also you know that what you were talking about with your boss right like your boss is probably not like Jeff Bezos wealthy just like a McDonald's man or a jack-in-the-box manager but that's the thing. That's another reason that capitalism itself is able to remain so insistent and so strong. And that's something that also talks about in the book I'm reading is that 
the capitalists themselves are like the very wealthiest are only like 1%, 2% of the population. And so they get the kind of more general consensus they need by creating like these, well, the middle class, I mean, middle, middle and classes, right? Mm-hmm. Where your manager is not the wealthy owner of capital, but he is doing marginally better, right? Than the base level workers. He has some power under the system, right? And he can exploit that power for his personal gain or he or she. Because of that, they'll side with the status quo, even if their lives might necessarily uh, be better, like uh, under socialism or something like that. The same can be seen with how like the South uh, functioned as as a social order right in early american history when uh, african americans were first coming to the united states as slaves and indentured servants for example bacon's rebellion in virginia was a rebellion that was done by both african american slaves and poor whites and indentured servant and indentured servants because mm-hmm. the issue at that time was the class right it was like the rich cal- uh, Vir- virginia plantation owners versus like the poorer classes but then that's when the rich white aristocrats started saying, okay, this is how we'll do it. So basically they started making it so that these two uh, classes, the poor whites and the poor blacks would separate from each other, Hate right? Each other. When a poor, yeah, when a white indentured servant and a black slave would escape together, they would severely punish the black person, but they would let the, but they wouldn't punish the white guy. And then, so then the, you know, that would cause resentment in between the two races, right? Uh, they made it so that when uh, whites ended their indentured servitude, they were given some, a little bit of land and a little bit of money and like a rifle and, you know, slaves, uh, black slaves obviously didn't get any of that. And right. so by kind of putting whites just above black people, so they felt they just had a little bit of superiority. They felt they had something to lose compared to the people at the very bottom. They subscribed, they gave their support to the rich white planners right when they would their lives would have fundamentally been better if they had joined up uh hand in hand with black people to resist the status quo um it's interesting because if you look at in the i think i believe like the 1960s 1970s um this is not the first time um, universal healthcare was introduced. And actually it was closer to being passed back then than it is now. But what happened was what stopped America from universal healthcare before everybody else was that black people would get it too. Yep. And um, the fact that they had working class whites and black people so pitted against each other um, when really the benefit would be coming uh, together with one another is insane. And because I know that's like a rhetoric among libertarians that like black, the working class needs to come together. And I keep feeling like libertarians and anarcho-capitalists are always just on the edge, just on the edge right. of realizing. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, nah, 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 no, that doesn't make sense. And, but like, they're always just on the, I think that they could get there. I really do. Because their, their ideology, in my opinion, is a segue to leftism. Yeah. That's like one of the onion jokes I like where it's like libertarian friend gets it right 50% of the time, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, this is like, wait, you want to give people, you want to give like people of all races equality, right? Yeah. You want to let like, like you don't want the government to interfere in like a woman's right to choose, right? Like, yeah. Uh, You want to like take away police brutality. Yeah. Do you want to remove the economic system that fundamentally causes these problems to exist? 
nah, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with that one. <laughs> wait. <laughs> like, wait, that's, that's the problem, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, 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 it's almost as if their entire ideology has started to turn into just anti-socialism. Like it went from it's anti-state, anti-socialism. That's what they're and in their heads, it kind of becomes state equal socialism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what keeps them from making that breakthrough because they're always just on the edge. I know there's been a few times where we've had conversations, and you're probably like, "She's on the edge," and I'm like, "No, that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't." <laughs> um, no, you know, but it's like you can't to an extent you can't even blame people because. The United States has so effectively employed anti-communism, right? Mm-hmm. The Red Scares, the Cold War, all of our rhetoric has been made to look like socialism is like the devil, right? Uh, and I, mean, I, I read like reports about how the CIA would like work with journalists who had like iffy morality to like pay them money to like publish articles, both in the United States and in like many countries and many uh also, uh, this is a term I'm trying to use more overexploited rather than underdeveloped because mm-hmm. uh, like within socialism and Marxism that uh, third world countries are often discussed. It's not that there's anything wrong with the people there because underdeveloped seems to put the onus on people living in those countries as in they're not developed enough. They, they need to develop their country mm-hmm. when the reality is that, right, all these countries are incredibly wealthy, right? Yeah. Like resources. Indonesia is wealthy. Exactly. There is all this wealth, but it's overexploited. That's Mm -hmm. the problem. There is an overexploitation of these, of these places that takes wealth away and gives it to the Western world. Right. Mm -hmm. That's so much. That's, that's the big problem. When you look at countries like that, the third world countries or what they call underdeveloped countries, you do see wait a minute, these countries should be owning significant amount of money. Like their citizens shouldn't even be living the way that they are. You look at Congo, you look at Haiti, you look at a lot of uh, African countries or Caribbean countries, and you see that based on their resources and the businesses that use them, Mm -hmm. they should be much more well-off than they are. But it's because of the fact that they've been so severely exploited with the use of the um, American military by under an employment of the rich to exploit these places, they don't get what they should have. Um, Like logistically, Haiti should have been one of the richest uh, countries for its size, you know, but because of the um, American occupation and honestly, when I look into the, when I look into American occupation and the lengths that we go to to destroy countries and then the way that we are taught to look at these countries, it's Mm -hmm. actually disgusting. Because if we like, if you think about it, we're taught to look at third world countries as if they're terrible, um, rife with the corruption and the people like don't know anything and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And it was brought to, onto them by usually by socialism or by themselves, by poor choices. But when you actually look into the history of it, with during throughout the inflammation of socialism, the people were happy, but the decline in livelihood starts with American occupation. Same thing with Vietnam Mm -hmm. and Haiti and Congo and so many other countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and in that he spends a lot of time talking about this regarding Vietnam. And he talks about how Vietnam uh, had its rebellion uh, against the French government, uh, you know, the French colonial government by the communists to implement their own state. Uh, And, you know, they were going pretty well, but then the U.S. intervened 
uh, you know, to keep South Vietnam versus North Vietnam and things like that, to try to keep capitalism in the region uh, so that people could, so that Western capitalists could get resources from Vietnam because it was a very resource rich place, right? And then during the war, you know, they killed millions upon millions of people, right? For example, something that isn't talked about in the Korean War is like the fact that the United States killed like 10, like I think it was like 15, 25% of North Korea's civilian population. Wow. Millions upon millions upon millions of people in North Korea were murdered by the United States of America. Like that's a larger percentage than the amount of Asian Americans we have in this country. That's yeah. that's more that's more than the amount of black people we have in this country. Exactly. That's, that's the, insane. That's the proportion they killed, which is crazy to think about right and obviously you know like kim jong-un isn't a good guy right right but the way the way we need to approach history is not to always approach it from the viewpoint of america but think empathize with how people think in that country right Mm. which is that why this north korea right even though it has this fascist like this totalitarian state right? All this terrible, all the terrible things going on. Why is it that they feel that they need to defend themselves so hard from imperial aggression through right. the nuclear missiles? Because they have a collective trauma as a nation of having a quarter of their civilian population be wiped out by the American military. Right. What a lot of people point to what was, what went wrong with Russia and becoming probably what would have been the breaking point for socialism and communism as ideologies was the consistent attacks by um, capitalist countries. I think it was you, actually, who told me that, like, the constant attacks is what led to the militarization, and with Mm -hmm. militarization comes corruption. Yep. That's the thing, which is a way to, because this is the thing I think is the most interesting, because even if you have capitalist and communist countries in the same world, competition still exists, right? And capitalist countries naturally have that competition because of their economic systems, right? But communist countries recognize that if they don't like keep, if they don't try to keep up in some way, that that they're going to get pushed out. And so that's part of that militarization thing, right? And like, for example, this is why like the Soviet Union can't be looked at as like a great example of like socialism because it was an empire, right? Right. They, they invaded Afghanistan to like expand their influence and things like that. It was an empire, but that's because it had to compete with the United States because the United, it knew that the United States was seeking to fundamentally destroy its socialist experiment, right? And so they always need to stay prepared. They had to invest an incredible amount in their military that they instead they could have invested in economic development, right? And as a result, their nation could not function as well. And also, you know, they were closed out out of a lot of global trade, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's why we can't just, we can't look at single examples and say this is a failure of the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Basically, after Vietnam was ravaged by napalm, uh, like millions upon millions of people were murdered. The economy was trashed. Like everything was awful because America literally kind of like destroyed the country. They couldn't even grow crops. Exactly. And then you know what happened? Five years later, after they leave, or even right after they leave, the United States federal government gets the media to print out all these reports. Like, oh, look at the tragedy in Vietnam. People can't get food, things like this. You know, there's starvation, death, all these things. 
Mm-hmm. All those things were happening because the United States had just destroyed the country. Yeah. yeah, it just bombed and killed millions of people and destroyed farmland and all of these things. But the fact that they were managing to do as well as they were able to do is testament to the ability of those people and the ability of socialism as an ideology, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, if you destroy something, like I don't know if you've seen like the meme where like. Uh, if it's like it's like Eric Andre and he shoots Hannibal Burris and then he's like, oh, who killed Hannibal? Like this yeah. is the exact thing. This is it. This is like capitalist projection onto socialism. Mm. The problems caused by capitalism, they'll blame on socialism. It's honestly, you see that trend in almost everything. It's the way that they operate. It's the way that they operate with most things. Uh, when Native Americans complain about the state of their socioeconomic status, well, you guys should have worked harder. It's the same thing with the black community. But then you then you look, it's like you broke my legs and you complain that I limp. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a it's a common trend you see around. I remember there's the Malcolm X quote that's like, you know, the white like white Americans put like a knife six inches in to black like the, into the back of black America, right? Mm-hmm. And if they pull it out three inches they say they pull it out three inches and then they assume everything's going to be okay. Or even if they pull the knife out all the way, right. Even if they stop the stabbing, the wound is still there. Yeah. Right. They it's just not, put a bandaid on it. They just yeah. This is what like people like at Prager, you don't understand. It's like, yeah. wait, how can there be systemic racism when like the civil rights act said we can't have racism, right guys? Like, what's yeah. Going- Cause like, guys, history exists in a vacuum, guys. It doesn't have repercussions. These weren't actual people that have to raise children. This is getting a bit off topic, but there's this um, woman that I recently found out about, uh, Dr. Joy DeGroy, I think is her name. And she coined the term post-traumatic slave syndrome. And when I first saw it, I was like, what? Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Like, it sounds like bullshit, right? Like it's kind of a term that would instantly set off anybody that is even slightly conservative. They'd be like, this is bullshit. But she points out, you go back to slavery, right? And she said, everything that we, all the trauma that's faced in the Black community stems directly from slavery, not from Jim Crow, not from segregation, but from slavery itself, because nothing, the traumas that happened is within slavery were never addressed. Trauma is, can be passed on if it's not addressed. Um, that's actually a proven fact, biologically, psychologically. Um, it cannot be debunked. It, it's proven. Genetically, it's proven. You can pass down your trauma onto your children. So knowing this fact, you go into slavery. These are people who were captured, beaten. Uh, their family members stolen from them. They would have their wives raped in front of them. And you just freed them. They, they're free, but nothing was done to really correct that. I mean, we had reconstruction, but that was shut down. And even still, reconstruction did not address the mental aspect of it. You cannot tell me these people weren't traumatized. Mm-hmm. So then you um, have traumatized people raising traumatized children who are also having um, the society around them tell them that they are dirt, that they are trash, and that black is ugly. So then you have this. So they have new trauma from society, racial trauma, and then they have the slavery trauma of their parents. They also pass that down. Now we're in Jim Crow segregation days, right? It's That trauma is still there. It was never addressed at all. And so for the fact of them to say that slavery has nothing to do with the black Americans today is actually insane. When you look at the biology and the psychology of it, Mm -hmm. it makes no sense. There Mm -hmm. is 
trauma is passed down genetically. There's nothing to deny that, which also led me to the um, way of thinking that conservatism and its root is anti-science. It has to be. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that, that That is 100% on the nose. Right-wingism, conservatism, and especially, you know, the modern conservative ideology is moving more to the right every single day. Mm-hmm. It is anti-intellectual, right? It's intergenerational trauma is a thing. It's a fact, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's all these, because the sciences are great. The sciences, you know, whether it's the social sciences or the physical sciences, there's new discoveries happening all the time that are meant to right. be wrong, right? But they're blocked. But they're blocked because it doesn't advantage the people who are and who are in power so of course they do not want to see you know those kinds of things go through the only science i always say that republicans will respect is the science of economics <laughs> and not even that and then not even that because as soon as it's not some imbecile who isn't actually critically thinking outside of textbooks mm-hmm. they shut them down and my thinking is if conservatism in its root is meant to be the conservation of tradition and past ideals and science in its root is to produce new um, facts and new ideals. They are anti-science, but it's funny to me because they always say that leftists and liberals hate science. Yeah. I mean, that's, it it, it is largely Mm anti-intellectual movement because there, there are all these facts that show like what's the right way to, kind of organize our society in a better way that we should always be improving from where we are yeah it's very unfortunate so i know we kind of have drifted off topic into maybe the general sense of radical politics but i've noticed in a trend of the way politics work um you can't just talk about one thing especially when you are on the basis of a radical subject Mm -hmm. it's a it's a web like it all leads to something else Mm -hmm. but a question I would like to ask is how would, do you think socialism like would look in modern day society? Because I think that's another thing that people have a hard time conceptualizing or visualizing because mm-hmm. all we know is capitalism. Yep. So I don't think it'll come from the government. I'm mm-hmm. 100% confident at the best, the government would provide a welfare state to make it, to make life like more tolerable for poor people. But then again, that's not socialism itself, right? Yeah. That's just, the, the socialism itself is much more economic. It's much more about labor relations in between the owner and working classes and things like that. Right. It, it has little to exactly, do with it, government. It really has nothing to Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. it has little to do with government in the first place, right? So the way I see it, uh, most likely in the United States, is that eventually there will be a point at which class resentments are so high that there will be either violent or non-violent protest to the extent at which and large like labor organizing and strikes and things like that where workers start getting stakes or or even partial ownerships of the companies that uh, they work for Uh, I mean or you know this kind of change could possibly happen uh, if some uh, you know really really far left or far left in our opinion uh, in the current status quo candidate gets elected and they implement legislation uh, to like help worker cooperatives uh, start taking over you know the general uh, corporate form which is you know the workers each own uh, like an equal share of the company uh, and they democratically elect how to run the company and they democratically elect like who the leader should be so rather than the ceo hiring people the people like the workers hire the ceo uh, 
And, uh, you know, that, that is kind of how it would start off, right? You have, you implement socialism by people who work at companies literally uh, getting the ownership of those companies. And that's going to lead to a lot less wealth inequality. That's going to, you know, really help resolve those issues. And a lot of studies have shown that work co-ops are actually more efficient because turns out when people feel like they have a good stake in the company, when they feel like, like they're not just getting bossed around and like they feel like an individual who has power uh, and who matters within, who has a stake in a company, then they involve themselves in more, more in the company. And I could definitely see that. More, right. Because, like, my mindset when I was working at Jack in the Box, because uh, I, I don't know if you've ever worked fast food, but if there's a drive through there's a timer, and you have to get people out. Usually, you want your average time to be, like, five minutes. When the manager would tell me, oh, we need to do this faster because I really want to get the time up for the store, the opinion for most of us was, I don't care. I simply do not care because you've been an yeah. asshole to me for a whole week. And the customers are assholes to me, so I don't care if their food is cold. And it's not, I'm getting paid the same either way, you know? So I think that is, I honestly don't know how this stuff functions. I really think it's just how they, by constantly filtering out employees because of the fact that when you're at minimum wage, the the opinion is largely, I do not care about the state of this company. I'm just here to make ends meet. Agreed. Totally agreed. I mean, I, that's, that's what the system is set up to be like the rational response from the people who work, you know, in fast food or in like any industry. Right. And I think that, you know, it starts with that kind of thing where people who work at companies own it, where it's not just owned by, you know, the CEO and things like that. But over time, you know, it's a mindset thing and mindsets, right. Because culture and all these things is shaped generation after generation after generation, Socialism, socialism, like and communism, right? The, the the end goal of socialism is communism, right? Socialism is where you have the equal ownerships, uh, equal ownership or collective ownership of the means of production. But communism is when you end up with that stateless, classless society, right? That is the end goal. That is like the utopia that people look out to of this is what we can really make for humanity. Right. And that'll slowly edge because it will slowly edge towards that generation after generation, because successively people will be detoxified of the mindset and the culture that capitalism has bred. Right. Because if right now we try to take all the people in this world or in this country and put them into a classless, stateless society, I don't think that would work right off the bat just because our mindsets have been so bred and so set in stone. But when you start with, you know, collective ownership, uh, but you maintain, you know, still like to an extent, some elements of capitalism, but you you still function as a socialist society, but you get away from that greedy outlook on the world uh, and, and that way of seeing success uh, and you start to redefine what it means to do good in society. Uh, slowly, generation after generation, money will become more important. People will become more generous. And eventually, you will live in that class of stateless society that mm. people like Marx and the utopian writers have written about. I think that's the way we're likely going to see things go. Because I feel like the era of like incredibly violent revolutions and uh, like massive states forming is is over right i think right. i think the i think like the introduction of nuclear weapons uh in many big countries has made it impossible for like you know the old style of revolutions to happen i think like massive telecommunications networks and like iphones and all that has made it impossible for like in an advanced country like the united states uh technologically for like 
a big state like the Soviet Union kind of to try to have like an oppressive militarized force to kind of keep the people down. I think it's going to be like a more slow and gradual generational shift. Mm-hmm. Like just in mindset overall. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the concept of in which the way, the point in which we're turning, which honestly I would say no, no one knows. We don't know where we're going right now. And the thing is, I think when we talk about socialism and communism and these things and how do we see them happening, it's always so hard to predict because methodology and all of these things depends so much upon, you know, the historical, like the, histor- the history of a certain society or culture or a nation right. uh, and, you know, the current present conditions and a lot on chance and just like how things shape up in a given moment, right? It's, it's, it's often very short term that things happen. You know, as Lemon said, uh, you know, there are, there are years where weeks go by and then there are days when years happen right? Mm-hmm. You have the finding pivotal moments that kind of snap and shift society in like a major way. Wait, yeah. And and the way to think about it is less, I don't like, and I think I have a lot more learning to do, but I think a way is to consider it like have, have guidelines of what you know is the, what we should be moving towards, but be flexible in methodology. Right. Uh, approach situations is what is most advantageous at that point uh, in order to sort of work over time towards the right place. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's really a difficult thing because, you know, there, there, there is so much in society stacked up against this kind of monumental change that needs to happen for people mm-hmm. to live, right? Like yeah. even climate change, like the most basic thing, right? We're not taking substantive action across the world to address it. We're really, it's really going to depend on what happens within, you know, the next months and years. You know what? Actually, I found interesting and I have forgot about until right now. Um, I play this game called Hitman. And in the second one, there's um, a part where you go to the arc and it's like a secret society of basically one percenters. And uh, they know that climate change is happening and they know that is from what they've caused. That's why they know it's coming. And then they're basically coming up with a plan to be able to make sure that they're going to be okay in the long run. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, when I started to get more radicalized, I noticed like in pop culture and stuff, more more uh, things that were kind of trying to hint at us for a while that we just kind of went over our heads. But they like point at a lot of like, oh, look at this that's happening and look at that that's happening. And I don't know, Hollywood is also like something that I would really look at with um, state power and like the one percenters in control. Because while there's people in Hollywood that obviously benefit from keeping the status quo, I also feel like there's a lot of like signals coming out of there as well because they're pretty close to it. Yeah, like like signals supporting the status quo kind of deal. Like... I mean, it it just makes a lot of sense just because like, I, I will, I will think that to an extent, like, you know, top execs at Hollywood, you know, are the types to like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a big club to be in the top 1%, you know, mm-hmm. frequent the same events. It's like everybody's in kind of together. Uh, you have the same big parties and stuff like that. Like, it is kind of like a small group. Uh, yeah. you know, it's not like a massive conspiracy going on, but like people know each other and try to like and work with each other, right? Like for example, you know, media executives are close to the government right. and things like that. Uh, and so, which but, we but, should look more into because oh, propaganda. 
exactly. but like people just seem to not understand why that's such a big issue. Oh yeah. That, that <laughs> the, the mainstream media is something that can be discussed for a while. And yeah. How, how it's, how we live in a media controlled country. Uh, that's, oh, yeah. It's less now than it was 20 years ago, thanks to the advent of the internet uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, the mainstream media is a well-oiled propaganda machine. Oh, right? yeah. That got us to go to war with Iraq for, like, no reason. <laughs> I mean, that was crazy, right? Oh, yeah. And everybody just forgets about that. Like, that the mainstream media was, like, kind of the <gasps> puppet for that whole effort by the Bush administration. I don't know if you've seen the meme. Um, it's like... <gasps> It'll point out something that the media told us, and then it's like now the media's like on a completely different side. And it's like, do you remember Pepperidge Farm remembers? <laughs> and I don't know. It's pretty funny. It's like from Family Guy. But yeah. That's a good name. <laughs> do you have any reading you suggest to further um, anyone's knowledge on socialism? Anyone that might be trying to get into it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is this. Uh, so books are good, but also I'm going to recommend like other things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll recommend a person first off. Uh, his name is Richard Wolf. Uh, that's Richard, you know, then the normal spelling, but Wolf with two Fs. Uh, and he has books that are like kind of introductory materials into socialism and communism, things like that. Mm. He was a Marxist uh, economics professor for a very long time. Uh, and basically... He he go he in these books he goes into like uh, intro definitions and more modern definitions that are more applied today uh, to like a lot of these socialism and communism things. But also he has a lot of good videos. He has a YouTube page uh, where he talks about like current events it, within the frame of like Marxist economic analysis and things like that, uh, which are very interesting. He's a really fun person to watch. Uh, he's pretty funny uh, as well, which is nice because uh, you know everything's stressful it's nice to have a funny kind of youtube person to watch to learn about these things uh but i remember there was a really good video watched by him that i actually learned i learned a lot from and it was just like an hour and a half but it was such an informative video and he talked about like the basics of like the worker cooperative model and like modern socialism uh and i i gained a lot of knowledge from that and i would recommend check but Mm -hmm. super cool video recommend it and then like there's also a q a section at the end and like uh, you don't have to watch that, but like I watched it and there were a lot of good questions and a lot of good answers. So okay. really cool, informative stuff. Uh, I also recommend like Noam Chomsky. Uh, he talks, he's not necessarily so much just about socialism bare bones, but he talks about like uh, the mainstream media and criticisms within, you know, our country. Uh, I'd recommend also uh, the book I'm reading right now, The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, because that talks a lot about socialism uh, in the past of the United States and like, uh, it like talks about how those movements were taken down so we can kind of learn from those failures in the past to try to improve uh, and also to kind of learn more about systemic racism and like systemic inequality and wealth inequality and things like that and under because I feel like something that is so important to like getting to where we want to go is understanding to the deepest extent how we got here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how previous movements that tried to get us to that place we want to go to failed. Right. Because that, that's a good point, because I know we're closing out. But yeah, because uh, what we see now is a lot of people are trying to mimic the same movements that failed in the past. And a valid point is we should be looking for something new. We should be learning from these movements, not mimicking them. Agreed. But thank you, Jason. You 
enlightened, probably enlightened a lot of people and helped out a lot with this podcast. I hope so. And I'm glad that you decided to come on. Thank you so much for having me. This is super cool. I love talking politics as usual. You know that. I yeah. <laughs> can, I, I will not shut up uh, at a certain point if you get me going. Neither uh, will I. So if there's any other... Well, JSA kids, you yeah. know how it is. Uh, but if you want to have me on at any other point, please let me know. I would more than love to talk to you again. Uh, I definitely will. I mean, there was like five times we almost started a whole nother episode. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.